from Hwasun Village on Jeju Island, this is The Korea File, a weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from all around the peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, part two of a conversation with the president of the Royal Asiatic Society of Korea, Brother Anthony. You also are a translator, and you uh, were the translator for... Uh, a great Korean poet, the poet that is always submitted with the Nobel Prize Society. He's really esteemed in Korea. What's his name? Kwon. Yes, we had a reading last Saturday mm-hmm. in Myeongdong. Yeah, well, Kwon. Kwon is the only Korean poet who's really ever been heard of outside of Korea. Uh, this is always a problem. The Korean writers, on the whole, are totally unknown. A little bit more now, but for a long time. Even if you translated them, they weren't published. And even if they were published, they weren't sold. And even if they were sold, they weren't read. <laughs> but um, Cohen uh, has a certain charisma. Um, he's closer than any other Korean poet to being a performance poet. Um, he, the way he re- reads his poetry uh, somehow uh, galvanizes public that doesn't understand a word of it, whereas most Korean poets just, you know, close themselves in and mutter. So he's, uh, he has uh, considerable impact, and he's had that impact now for quite a long time, since the 1990s, in the States or wherever he goes. He's, he's the only Korean who sort of belongs to the international uh, Nobel level uh, set, you know, he he's travelled and been part of things with Seamus Heaney and Brodsky and uh, Zimborska and um, you know, things like that, people like that, you know, up there, as it were, at the top of the poetry world. What kind of skill set do you need to bring to translating that level of poetry? Uh-huh. I don't know. Um... I mean, there are always two things when you're translating, uh, accuracy and readability. Um, my Korean isn't that good. I really? suppose my English is better. Um, so actually, well, when I'm do- working on, on Ko uh, his wife graduated from Sogang and then became a professor in the English department of the university, so her English isn't bad. And so she can check and say, no, that's not what that means. Because poetry, Korean poetry tends to be obscure or ambiguous. You don't know who is doing what subject object. Uh, so she checks. And then we also have an American, a young poet in America, who makes some sort of editorial suggestions to sort of tighten it up a bit as poetry. Coming way back to um, the Royal Asiatic Society, uh, having lived here for 37 years, 35 years, 35 years, um, you become uh, so immersed in the culture, and for you that was part of your role as well as a member of the order. So was that immersion what brought you to the Royal Asiatic Society? Were you always engaged in it? 
No, How did you reach this rule? I, say, I, mean, well, I gave a couple of lectures in the 90s because I knew people who were in it. But that, it didn't interest me much. And then there was one, I don't know when it was, sometime. It's been around two, just after 2000, before I retired from, from Sogang. The, the president then was actually a professor in Sogang, a Korean. And um, he sort of looked desperate and said, please come and help. Uh, and um, so, well, I knew him quite well and sort of thought, well, I better, and why not? You know, I'm going to retire anyway, so have more time. Uh, so I, <coughs> uh, he asked me to become a council member. In those days, we only had about six people on the council. Council meetings were nothing. Well, nothing was nothing. It was pretty... The lectures were beginning to attract more people because when they opened Somerset Palace there in Angukdong, by miracle, uh, somebody met somebody who s and somebody said, why don't you use our breakfast lounge for your lectures? And said, oh, well, this will be expensive. No, 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 we, we don't need money. You just use our, our lounge. <gasps> because this had been a problem. Uh, Having a meeting place. Yeah. Uh, so from that time on, it's very central. There's no parking problem. It's close to the subway. It's easy to find. So uh, that was great, great help. And people start, started to come again because they'd been wandering around Seoul in some very obscure buildings. Mm. And um, so I joined the council, and then one thing leads to another. Having that stability of location mm. must allow for more consistency with the people who uh, attend. For, especially for the lectures. I mean, we have an office over in John Olga, but that's, you know, in the old days people used to drop by the office. We had a manager, the same manager, for 45 years, Ajuma. And, um, of course, in those days, wives of businessmen, even wives of diplomats, were bored stiff, and they loved to go and have a chat and look at books. Uh, but the office and the manager, 45 years, she's getting old, her husband's sick, um, things start to sort of decline, and by the time uh, I became president, it was chaos. Uh, so I, I gently suggested that she might like to retire, <laughs> and um, we were very lucky. Somebody, after about a year of chaos, after her, uh, suddenly we were given a very good young person. Uh, manager having a hard time because she's very sincere and actually trying to keep on top of stuff let's talk for a minute about the relationship between this institution because when you've been around for a hundred years it's a long time what has that relationship been like in some of the darker periods of Korean history oh. first of all going back to the time of the occupation so right around the time it was formed was also when Japan occupied the peninsula. Mm. What was that relationship like between the society and uh, the colonial well, powers? I don't think Arias had much of a profile mm. as such. You see, I mean, the, the founding members were all mostly missionaries, Protestant missionaries, uh, and Anglican, uh, or a few diplomats. But after 1905, you had very few diplomats. You, you only had consuls, because diplomacy was in uh, Yokohama, uh, in Japan. <coughs> so 
almost all the foreigners in Korea uh, during the 20s and 30s, 10s, 20s, 30s, they were missionaries, a few consuls, gold miners, very small number of business, very small number of business people, mostly gold miners. Uh, there was a, a British couple who ended up here in 1929 for a couple of years. Um, they had a daughter who was about nine years old. She went. She was sent to Seoul Foreign School, the only foreign school at that time, and she was the only child of non-missionaries. It was the gold miners, the engineers, uh, automatically sent their children or kept their children back home. Sounds like it was an almost accidental sort of loose union of interested parties wanting to like learn and discuss about the country. When did it become more of a firm, grounded uh, organization? Well, uh, you see, I mean, one interesting thing is that in 1911, when it started up again, I say, this is then the year after the annexation, um, in 1911, uh, there were three papers uh, given by Japanese, um, high-level Japanese. One of them was working in the bank, the, the sort of central bank, and uh, he had a very important job, and he had a PhD from Yale. And another one was, I think, in journalism, and one, I think, was in the administration. Um, and especially one of them, the one in the administration, gave a very sort of, you know, pro, you know, why Japan is a good thing for Korea, etc., historically. Um, so you had these three Japanese speakers, and their papers were published in Transactions. Uh, the, the Underwood of the next generation, who wasn't around at that time, said his father told him that there was a big row about having, being obliged, forced to publish those papers. papers. But anyway, what's clear is that after 1911 until 1941, no Japanese ever addressed the RAS, ever. Um, whether because they didn't think it important or whatever. Moving forward a little bit to what I've heard called the golden moment of the society. Uh, this was during the transition between, between uh, from the Syngman Rhee administration to the Park uh, administration. This was a very contentious time in Korean history. Uh, why was this a golden moment? I don't know. No. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Okay. What, what, what happened? I mean, what do you know? I mean, we don't know. Nobody's around. Nobody. We, uh, the only thing that we always look back on, because there are little there are little lists of events and things in transactions at the back. In <coughs> sometime in October, September, October, October 1960, that's to say after uh, the exile of Syngman Rhee, uh, the acting, uh, sort of acting president was Yun Bo Son, and the RES, uh, one, one afternoon, 
uh, was invited to the presidential mansion for a reception and then they went down to Kjombokbong, the two-story big pavilion in the middle of the lake there and there was a royal banquet and a performance of court music. Okay. Uh, you know, they said, whoa! But, um, that's, you know, nobody really... The biggest number of members recorded, I think, is in the 1980s, right, 1988, in the Olympic time. By that time, Korea is sort of starting on the up and up. Mm -hmm. You have far more business people, and as I say, still at that time, it was rather grim, and there was not really much to do, uh, evenings and weekends, and nobody spoke any English. And so, by uh, around that time, you <coughs> the list says we had 1,800 members. Not sure how many paid, but anyway, it was that was you know the the biggest moment in terms of membership. What is the institutional memory like at a place like the RAS where people come and go, yeah. there's not a real firm line from decade to decade? Uh, okay, you can't do it. We've got a library. Uh, but, you know, I mean, okay, last year I was looking at a few of the books. I don't have time. Mm -hmm. But um, I was looking at a few of the old books, and I suddenly realized that some of them had a label inside saying this book entered the RAS library in... 1936. Um, we've got there's a, there's an article by somebody about the history of the library. There's an article by somebody well by Horace Underwood the the third. Um, history of the first hundred years you know, because he could because he talked to Horace H who was there for such a long time who was president for such a long time. Um, but at the moment, you see, it's, uh, there's an Mr. Chang, uh, a former president, um, he, uh, he's been a member for uh, probably 50 years. He's, he's always been uh, present and interested, and, but he doesn't, he's not much of a storyteller. So he, but he's the go-to guy. If you needed some information, well, he doesn't really know much. Talk, talking about the uh, 88 Olympics and the contrast, even with that time and today in South Korea, because of your institutional memory in terms of a citizen of the country, correct? Korean citizen. Uh, when did you get your citizenship? Oh, 20 years ago, 94. Uh, tell me about the most singularly profound change you've seen in Korean society? <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> there's one obvious big difference. Uh, if you go downtown on a Saturday or Sunday, it's full of parents and children. Now, in the 1980s, um, at least unless you're really rather high up you, you, you didn't have weekends working people real working people had one or maybe two Sundays off 
which they spent sleeping. Uh, you did not see mothers and fathers. The father was, I say, either uh, drinking or home sleeping or working. And they worked until late. Families had no father, because the father was always so late or tired, exhausted. And I uh, say, uh, ordinary working people, they had to work, I say, seven days a week, most weeks. Uh, so there's a huge cultural difference. I mean, it's, I mean, it's still the case that Korean parents don't really know how to be parents because they had no active real parents. I mean, Korean children traditionally were brought up by peers, other children. Mother was busy having other babies, and father, I say, was working, drinking, and chatting with his pals somewhere else. Uh, there's no tradition. There's, I mean, there's no tradition of family meal, because in Confucian society, grandfather eats first in his room, and then father eats first in his room, and then the eldest son eats in his room. And when all the men have eaten, the women are in the kitchen eating what's left, if there's left. So in terms of having leisure time and a more structured, yeah. sometimes Monday through Friday work schedule, this is a big profound change. Yeah. Uh, what about some more kind of disturbing changes? Have you seen a lot of backsliding in contemporary society that is frightening or any things that sort of seem more negative? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. Um, the biggest challenge for Koreans is that they don't know who they are. Uh, that's about culture. What do you mean by they don't know who they are? They don't know what it is to be Korean. Um, and they are not at all clear that uh, traditional Korean is their Korean. Which is why you, you know, they knock down everything old. And they don't see why you shouldn't. You can build something vaguely similar because it looks nice, mm. but um, there's no idea of uh, that something old has value in itself, whether it's traditional music or traditional art or traditional crafts or traditional houses or whatever. What are the root causes of this lack of identity, in your view? Well, it's, it's in history, isn't it? I mean, the Japanese told them that they were Japanese. And um, the division of the peninsula as well? Uh, well, not so much that way. But Pak Chong Hee <coughs> was very Japanese and he was very anti Korean. Mm. Uh, Pak Chong Hee didn't like traditional Korea. Mm. He thought it was backward and primitive and superstitious. Mm. And he did away with an awful lot of what we today would call heritage. Traditional music, traditional shrines, practices, customs, festivals, uh, drink. Abolishing every kind of local soju and things like that. And saying that this is in the name of modernization and, and progress. Uh, so that Koreans are the victims of progress mm. uh, in terms of then what's progress. Mm. Um, at the same time, the financial economic progress of Korea 
was made possible by telling them that they uh, should not expect to eat meat often until they you know, had earned it. And um, especially people in the countryside had to produce cheap rice and build up lots of debts and then commit suicide because they couldn't pay their debts so that the people working in the cities could uh, eat cheap rice. Are you optimistic for Korea looking forward? <laughs> I'm too old. Uh, it's not a matter of Korea anyway at the moment, it's the, the world. And there are various challenges facing the world which are not always quite easy to be quite optimistic about or to know exactly where all this is going to end. Uh, so it's not much point in you know, just Korea. But it is a challenge because Koreans, by not having a rooted cultural identity, uh, are totally at a loss because they don't really know what life is about. And they, people eating junk food and not able to get a, not able to get a job mm. uh, because the economy isn't very good mm. and that's the world economy um, as, as, a, as a religious man and as a yeah. coming from kind of a humanist background with your mm. with the order do you find that pessimism or hope is uh, better Oh, well, we got to I mean, uh, see, the big challenge is that Korea is a totally unreal bubble. Well, there are two bubbles, but they are interlocked bubbles, north-south. And so long as they are two uh, separate bubbles, um, they are both living in unreal worlds. Uh, they can only become real when they are no longer bubble. Uh, in a way, it doesn't even really matter how that happens, uh, but it must happen because the, the current situation where you have you know, pseudo-America, South Korea, and then goodness knows what it is, uh, pseudo-Japanese, perhaps North Korea, uh, only existing because the other is there. Um, won't do at all. Uh, the future of Korea has to be somehow uh, together, mm. uh, to find some way of doing it together. You hopeful that unification is a possibility? Uh, it's, yeah, I think it's sure to happen one way or another. Um, It may be very messy, I suppose, but um, you know, in terms of, I say real and unreal, the present future is unreal. Mm. And it's because it's unreal, then both sides are, in a sense, alienated from their own reality and from what should be there. There's mm. uh, also some stuff going on there, but. Um, anti-north, anti-south, uh, this rhetoric has no sense. But, uh. That's the Korea file for this week. Thanks to Brother Anthony. 
You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Stitcher, and at Spreaker.com. Tune in next week for a conversation with Chuja Island's Ben Spencer. If you like this show, recommend it. From Huasin Village on Jeju Island, I'm Andre Dure. 